I invite you once again to open your Bibles to Jonah, Jonah chapter 2, passage we looked at a few weeks ago. We will look at again, but through uh, from a different angle or through a, a different lens. Uh, but if you've been with us, we know that we've been looking at the uh, the life, or at least the, the experience of the prophet Jonah. And so far we have seen a, a man who was a seasoned prophet who had been called by God and specifically sent to go issue a warning to the enemies of his own people, to, to the Ninevites or, uh, or the Assyrians and their capital city of Nineveh. And he was to go warn them of the impending judgment. God had seen the evil and he was uh, about to bring down the hammer on these people, but because God is also gracious and is calling people from every tribe and tongue and nation, he sent a prophet to go and to warn them that they may repent and, and to uh, believe. Uh, but even though Jonah was called, he went about as far as he could possibly go in the opposite direction. God wanted him to go one direction, he got on a ship and went the other direction. But we've seen that when Jonah fled, that God raised up a great storm to reclaim his prodigal prophet. Storm caused a panic on the ship. The sailors on the ship trying to figure out what was going on. Eventually, it caused Jonah to be uh, not just it, the storm, but God caused Jonah to be tossed into the into the sea. And yet, in God's providence, he found salvation in the form of a great fish or a whale. And it's inside this fish or whale that we see Jonah's transformation taking place almost before our, our very eyes. When we looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago. We focused kind of on, on the subject of, of, the, of, of prayer, uh, Jonah's prayer, used that, that, and focused our attention on how grace had gripped him, which is how the transformation began to take place. Uh, this morning, I want to look more specifically on the substance of Jonah's prayer so that we will look at how faith developed him, brought him to a place that he had neglected or had run from. And so we look at Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 10, and then we'll dig in. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, to the Lord his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of God, let's pray. Father, we come this day praying that you would grant us insights, thankful that you have given us your word, thankful even more that your spirit who inspired the word in the first place also illuminates our hearts and our minds to understand it. 
We pray that that truth would come to work in each of us today, uh, that your word would instruct, it would encourage, even if it may break first. Lord, do your work in us that we all might find joy and peace and hope and stand it all at the glory of your grace. This we pray with confidence because it's what you told us you would do. And we pray all things in the incomparable name of Christ, our Redeemer King. Amen. Seems one question looms very large here. How did Jonah go from the depths of despair to one who is hopeful and even contented even though his circumstances had yet to change. And if you think about it and you look at this passage, Jonah had hit bottom, literally. I mean, he sunk to the bottom where he was swallowed up. He was in the depths of the sea, below sea level. And almost every verse in this prayer gives some indication as to how deep he was, that he was in in the depths. He was in the depths of the despair. So how does he go from a condition like that to where he ends up at the end of this prayer when the circumstances themselves had not changed. Now, before we move on, one of the things that we need to recognize here is that Jonah here represents a condition that every one of us has experienced. In fact, some of us are experiencing it even now. Jonah feels like he is overwhelmed. Jonah is in over his head. He is in deep, he is in deep despair, anxiety, at least from the beginning, hopelessness. It's a situation that is common, situation that many experience. He feels buried, and there's nothing that he himself is able to do to get himself out of that situation. And yet, Jonah, he who's in this condition, we see this transformation unfold through these verses. In verses 1 through the first part of verse 6, we, we see that he was in deep, but then the second part of verse 6 is verse 6 unfolds. He says, but you have brought my life from the pit, and yet he's still within in the fish. We see a transformation that's taking place, a, a point of change within him. And then by verses 8 and 9, he's up, even though he himself is still in the same condition. It's not until verse 10, after this prayer is expressed, is that we find Jonah is back onto solid ground. We, we see a transformation taking place within himself that we all are in need of, that we all are, some of us are in acute need of it because of circumstances we find ourselves in. And so this question looms for us. How did this happen? How did he go from one who was in despair to one who was contented and is hopeful? The short answer is this, is that faith rose up and met him and shaped his heart. No doubt there's some who would be thinking, oh, I'd love to have faith like that. I wish I could believe in God like that. Or I wish my faith could hold me up like that. But it doesn't seem to be my experience. I don't know if you've ever had those thoughts or not. They, they are very common. You're, you're in good company. But the problem with every one of those thoughts is this. is it's, They betray a fundamental, even a common misunderstanding of what faith is. You see, for many people, people assume that faith is sort of like an athletic talent or a, a musical talent. Just some people have it and some people don't. I mean, you can try all you want, but you're going to hit your, you're gonna hit your, your peak and 
you're going to hit your Peter principle and then you're just not going to go any further. And you stand amazed at the people who have this kind of faith, who you've even seen that may have, uh, in your own circle of friends, might have had circumstances that seem to be kind of like Jonah's, at least in the fact that they were in overwhelming circumstances and they persevered and they just had this hope and the comfort and the peace and, and eventually they, they were delivered from that. And it just doesn't seem to be your experience. But a lot of people think that that's just them and, and, it, and it can't be me because they, they think of faith as being like a talent and somebody saying, gee, I wish I could play the piano like that or I wish I could throw a ball like Peyton Manning. And yet, it's a misunderstanding of what faith is. Faith is not a talent. Faith is being controlled by the promises of God more than by your own circumstances and your own feelings. And that is something that is available to every one of us. As we look at this prayer of Jonah this morning, one of the things that we're going to discover is that we can respond to any circumstance, any situation that we have in faith. And that if we respond to our situations and circumstances in faith, we will find ourselves with the same kind of transformation taking place, even a deepening within us. Even before we find ourselves spit up on a dry land. We're going to look at this faith as it develops within us and how faith works in three different ways here because it's the way that we see it illustrated throughout this, throughout this prayer. And the first thing we see is, is that Jonah is crying out to God. We see that in, in the passage. Jonah says, in my distress, I call out to the Lord. From the, from the depths, I, I called out for help. Jonah's calling out to God. Now, he's not calling out and saying, I wonder if there is a God. He's not musing and he's not philosophizing. He's, he's calling out specifically to God. He's saying, God, are you there? Or where are you, God? God, show me your glory. Remind me of who you are. That's the essence of the prayers that we see Jonah expressing in, in these first few verses. And it's an illustration. It's a reminder to us that the, the first step of faith is calling out to God. Now, there's some of you who may be here who are exploring the faith. Or you've grown up in a Christian home and it's, the faith is not yet yours. And so you might be thinking, well, that doesn't really make sense. So I'm supposed to call out to a God I'm not sure really exists in the first place. That almost sounds like you have to have faith in order to get faith and then to exercise faith, and it just doesn't really seem to make sense. I would say that's not necessarily the case. I mean, the question itself is, is understandable, but it's not necessarily the case. First of all, I think that everyone is hardwired to have some measure of faith. That's why we see through every culture through the world, no matter how primitive or however advanced or however important the cultures may think, everyone worships something. In other words, as humans, we're hardwired to understand in our very nature that there is a God, there is something transcendent beyond ourselves and beyond our experience. 
That's why the statement, there are no atheists in foxholes, is so readily understood, because even those who seem to be the most antagonistic against the idea of a God in the midst of being under fire will often find themselves praying, even if the attitude is simply like, well, it can't hurt. because we're hardwired to believe that. And so while you may be skeptical of the specific claims of Jesus Christ or of the Bible, you instinctively understand that there is something beyond yourself unless you have convinced yourself otherwise. But even if you are somebody who can't quite buy that, even if you're somebody who can't say, well, I, I, you know, the, the fact that everybody prays is not an indication that there is a God that's there, I don't think you necessarily have to have faith first in order to begin the process of faith. I think you can begin with this. As someone who influenced my understanding of this said, is, all you have to do is begin by doubting your doubts. In other words, we all know that we have limitations intellectually. We all know that there's more out there than we know and the more than we can understand. And so even those who have convinced themselves that, you know, we're all that there is, you know that you don't know that there's everything. And so you have doubts about this idea of God or that God is specifically involved in our lives or that we can somehow be saved and that God is involved. Well, why do you empower your doubts? Why do you demand that God prove himself to you, but your doubts don't have to prove yourself? Why don't you talk to your doubts and say, you prove yourself to me? But some people would rather doubt anything except for their doubts. We enthrone the doubts even though we know that they can't answer the very demands that skeptics make upon God. And so if you're in that position and, and you're hearing me say the first thing you need to do to have faith is to, doubt, is to call out to God, I would just challenge you to doubt the doubts, make the doubts, answer to you whatever it is that you think is necessary and then consider the claims that God makes about himself through the testimonies of those who have experienced him firsthand, not just here, but throughout the pages of the Bible. And as you call out to God and say as Jonah did, show me, show me your glory. Where are you, God? You will find that God meets you. We also need to recognize that this is written also for those who are already believers. Jonah's already one who is a believer. He's a seasoned prophet. He's already proclaimed, prophesied for God to his own people. God raised him up and sent him out. Um, and, and so he knows a lot. Chances are he knows his theology. He knows a lot about God, although we see quite clearly he doesn't really understand God. But then who of us does? At this point in his life, he doesn't even really like God very much. And many of us, whether we would say it or not, we get to that point when God demands certain things of us that not what we want to do or seems to say, this is not what you should be doing and it's what we really, really want. When our purposes are counter to God's purposes, then sometimes we're not real happy with God. We wouldn't say it and maybe not go to the extremes that Jonah has done. But we can certainly understand Jonah. But we see that the answer to see the transformation taking place in our life, to move us from the anxiety and the despair and the hopelessness is the same. And he represents us because he is one who is a believer, who already has known God, who's experienced God's grace. And he says, I cried out to you. I cried out to you, Lord, in my distress, 
Jonah says, Lord, show me your glory. And that illustration is important for us because there are so many of us, so many Christians, and myself included, that are so prone to worry in God's direction or grumble in God's direction, but not actually call out to God. Worrying while aware that there is a God, grumbling while we are aware there is a God is not the same as talking to God. It's not the same as prayer. In the example of Jonah says, the first thing that we need to do is we cry out to God, whatever our circumstance. Second thing that we see is after he cries out to God and he's engaging God, we just use a, another word is contemplation. It might be meditation, but, but we see what Jonah says in, in verse four. He says, I will look again to your temple. And then in verse seven, he says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And both the word look and remember are, are significant for us because they both tell us that Jonah was thinking. He, he was contemplating that which he knew. He was meditating on that which God had already given to him. And Jonah looks specifically to the temple because the temple is a, a visual aid. It's a reminder of salvation. It's a concrete picture of the gospel, both the good news of the gospel and the bad news of the gospel. Now, the bad news of the gospel is this, is that the temple represents God's law. See, within the temple, in the different chambers, inside the Holy of Holies is the, uh, is, is the inner uh, court, and inside the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark of the Covenant were, was the law, literally, the, the Two tablets that God had given to Moses, they were in the Holy of Holies. The, the law is in the presence of the holiest place of God. And therefore, the temple, in that sense, represents the law. And the law itself is an expression of God's character. Or as one theologian put it this way, the law is an expression of God's character that calls us to build our lives on the model of his holiness or greatness. So the law is not just there as a way of doing things, but the law is there demanding, commanding, that we conform our lives to the ways that God says that we are to do things. And so Jonah's, the bad news of the gospel is Jonah's looking to the temple and he is seeing the law. And the reason that the law is bad news is because we're all aware that we break it. It points out to us all the ways that we fall short. There's another theologian that said that the, the law is not really bad news. It's just demanding news for us, but it's bad news because it, it reminds us of all of our weaknesses and flaws. And the bad news further is compounded by this, is that we cannot relate to God apart from his law. And I know that's made some people uncomfortable. I hope to be able to summarize it in a way that uh, it will make sense in a moment, but I'm not going to back from that truth. We cannot relate to God apart from his law. question is how we do it. Now that statement is difficult to swallow. That statement makes some of us chafe. That statement is one that we would sort of object to, but the reality is we, we see that in everyday life. For those of you who are athletes or, or former athletes, you recognize that the best coaches say that it's my way or the highway, and they're not going to put up with antics that are detrimental to the team. 
I remember reading uh, uh, something of uh, the relationship between uh, the great UCLA coach John Wooden and uh, his star player Bill Walton, All-American center, uh, somewhat flamboyant, uh, trying to be a free spirit during the early 70s. And Bill Walton, John, uh, John Wooden was old school, had a number of rules. Among the rules were, you're going to have your hair cut. Bill Walton being a free spirit in the early 70s, California, influenced by the hippies, he decided he was going to wear his hair long. And Bill Walton was an All-American, and so he figured he could get away with anything, and he started pushing the rules, and he came in one day, his hair was uh, the first day of practice his senior year, his hair is long, he's got it up, uh, kind of tied back up, and uh, kind of a, a mini afro, and, but, it, but it was quite long, and John Wooden told him that uh, he needed to get his hair cut, sent him away from practice, and told him he couldn't come back until he got his hair cut. John um, and Bill Walton, again, thinking very highly of himself, as he should, he was the player of the year, um, just said, I'm not getting my hair cut. I, sh I, I need to be free to be me. To which John Wooden said, we're going to miss you. And Bill Walton cut his hair. And Bill Walton told the story and said that he was thankful for the influence, not because of the hair itself, but the influence of somebody who had integrity. In other words, the law reigned and the team was the better for it. Maybe a better illustration might be this. Just uh, imagine uh, a, a, a symphony conductor, and everyone in the symphony is playing a beautiful piece by Bach until one of the per people in the band decided that they want to play, I'm my own grandpa. <laughs> so everybody in the orchestra is playing the beautiful classical piece, and the one, one, in, one musician says that I'm going to play my own song because that's what I feel like playing. And the conductor's going to stop and insist that that musician stop and play the piece that everybody else is playing, the superior piece. But the musician says, but I'm an artist. I have to express myself. The conductor's going to say, what? Well, go express yourself somewhere else. Because this is what we play. This is what we are playing. It's not personal. It's just the law of music that you've got to play in harmony for it to be beautiful. But when everybody decides that they're going to do their own thing, that they are their own individual, that they're going to operate by their own law and not by the law, then what you have is disharmony and you have ugliness. You see, the problem is not that the musician was guilty for wanting to be an artist. He is guilty of wanting to be the conductor while he's an artist. And while it's possible, I assume, to flawlessly play a piece of music. It is not possible for us to flawlessly live our lives in accordance with the law. And Jonah's aware of that, but Jonah's looking to the temple and he is certainly reminded and it's highlighting the fact that he has been out of relationship with God and he, he, that needs to be restored. There's discord here. He says he's going to look to the temple that reminds him of the law, but see, the temple also reminds him of something else. The temple reminds him of God's grace. You see, also in the innermost court of the temple in the Holy of Holies within the Ark of the Covenant that contains the law of Moses, just above that, above the, that is, is what's called the mercy seat, which is also known as the, the place of propitiation. Now, propitiation is one of those fancy theological words that a lot of people kind of try to avoid because it's not one that comes up in everyday conversation. And frankly, 
I don't know that I'd want to be in a conversation that came up in every day uh, conversation, but it's an important thing for us to understand. The word propitiation itself means to turn away of God's wrath through the sufficiency of a substitute payment, to turn away God's wrath. And one of the reasons people object to propitiation is that they just refuse to accept that God has wrath. Well, God is just. And so therefore, when people are hurting one another because of their unwillingness to conform to God's law, it brings God's anger. But propitiation is that the wrath is satisfied. The wrath is turned away because there is a substitute who makes the payment. And so every year during Yom Kippur, the high priest would go in and he would offer the sacrifice, the spotless lamb. The lamb that was a sacrifice was the substitute for the sins of the people. And if God said that the sacrifice was offered was a spotless lamb, and if the priest had properly prepared himself and went in having been purified, God would accept the sacrifice on behalf of the sins, and the sins of the people would be forgiven for that particular year. Jonah, no doubt, understood this very, very well. And so he's looking, he's aware of the demands of the temple. He's also aware that the temple was the place of the sacrifice where the substitute was sacrificed each year that paid the penalty that was necessary for his sin to be forgiven. And so the temple reminded him that God had forgiven the debt through that substitute. Now, for us, the temple should be a reminder to look to Jesus Christ. Because Romans 3.25 tells us that Jesus is our substitute and he is our propitiation. In his death, we see his substitutionary sacrifice. And that satisfies God's justice and the demands of the law. Which is why I can say that we relate to God, we cannot relate to God apart from the law. The question is, how will we relate to God in relation to the law? Are we going to stand on our own feet and how well we have kept the law? Or are we going to accept God's substitute and how well Jesus has kept the law, which was perfectly? Either way, we are relating to God on the basis of the law. We either do it on our own two feet or by God's gift, which we call grace. And what we need to understand here is, is Jonah makes these references to the fact that he's now contemplating about the temple. I'm going to look to the temple. I remember uh, you. Is that faith is essentially this. It is, it is remembering, it is thinking, and it is talking to yourself about the things that God has said and God has promised and God has done. Now, we need to remember that faith is not automatic. It doesn't click on like a thermostat immediately, just, you know, because the temperature gets somewhere, like if you're unaware. Faith is more like a manual transmission, as one person put it. It needs to be put into gear. I have a feeling that illustration is going to be lost here someday. So, um, But uh, for some of you, there were cars that you had to put things in um, in gear. So... Uh, my oldest son knows how to. My second son, who's only nine months younger, does not. Somewhere along that line, somebody dropped the ball. Um, and, um, but, but faith is more like that. We have to put it into gear. God will remind us of many things. In many cases, it'd be like Jonah. He brings us to the end of ourselves. We have nowhere else to turn. And we find that that's God's grace because he doesn't want us to turn anywhere else, not because of just jealousy, but because there's no place better and there's no other place that can truly satisfy and bring us what we want. Faith is contemplating the facts. It's 
contemplating the truth that God has revealed to us and applying that to every aspect of our lives, every situation that we're in. Faith is talking to your heart. Doubt is listening to your heart and to your feelings. Faith is saying, I may feel this, but God says this. Faith is recognizing that God wins. Jonah said, I feel abandoned, but so what how I feel? I will look to the temple and I will remember I have forgiveness through the sacrifice of a substitute. So Jonah calls out to God and Jonah then contemplates, but the, the final thing is this, is that Jonah makes a commitment. The third step of faith is a commitment. We see that in the passage, Jonah says towards the end here, I will, I will sacrifice, I will make a vow, or I will keep the vows that I've made. What does he mean by that? What's Jonah doing here? Jonah is making a commitment. He's making a commitment to himself. He's making a commitment to God. He's making a commitment to living in God's ways. But notice that he's still making, he's making this commitment while he's still in, in, in the deep. And that's significant because what Jonah says and what he's doing is so different than the way that we and so many of us instinctively act, uh, act because we tend to say, God, if you get me out of this, I will do this. Jonah's saying, I'm going to do this. And so faith is not just an understanding and a contemplation, but faith is a commitment. And there are two things that are at work here. Two things that are working together. There's the contemplation and there's the commitment. They have to go together for faith to bring the transformation that we long for. Both are absolutely necessary. Let me illustrate this. Suppose you need surgery. You have a condition. It's a serious condition. How will you gain confidence that the surgeon that you have is the best one to do the procedure? How will you gain confidence that there will be benefit in having the procedure in the first place? A number of years ago, my father-in-law was diagnosed with a, a serious, uh, um, uncommon form of leukemia. And so he's diligently, and that's an understatement, but he just poured himself into research into his condition. Those who had outlived the expected time frame, the different variations in treatment, the successes, who was best at doing these things, he just studied and studied and studied as to what was the best way to go and who were the best people to do it. In his case, it was in need of a, a stem cell transplant. He networked with people by email. He, you know, just, if it was an avenue, he, he took it until he came to the conclusion that the best place for him to go, Emory Hospital in Atlanta, the people that were going to work on him, and he, he, that, was, that was what he, that's what he did. And that's how he, he gained the confidence. That was part of the, the first part of the commitment, but it's still part of the, the contemplation part. It's the, the learning and the studying. 
But we need to understand that faith doesn't grow by knowledge alone. Now imagine that you've done the same due diligence for whatever condition that you have. But when you show up at the hospital for your first treatment, you see all the knives and the needles, and I don't know if you're like me, but seeing the knives and the needles, and I'm saying, I'm out of here. Of course, depending on the size of the needle, I might be passed out, so it wouldn't go very far. But nevertheless, it, knives and needles don't inspire me to stay someplace, even if they're not aimed at me. So just imagine I'm in the one in the situation, and I see these things, and I say, I'm out of here. I haven't passed out. I'm able to stumble my way to the door, and I, I get out of the place because fear has set in, and my heart is telling me to do something contrary to what I know that my head says. I feel afraid, even though I know that this is what is best. You see, only by making a commitment and telling my heart to shut up Can I reap any benefit? My heart has to shut up and I have to remind myself of what is true and what is good. Not what I feel and what seems to be the circumstances based on these things that are within my view. And just as there's no benefit of being aware of a medical procedure and even knowing every detail about that, if you don't actually commit yourself to going, undergoing the medical procedure, there is no benefit to knowing every doctrine that is in the Bible and known to man if it doesn't shape the way that you think and the way that you live your life. That's what we call doctrine that puffs up, not that brings transformation. See, in the end, the faith is simply an ongoing process of looking to the temple, or in our case, looking to the cross, and then preaching the gospel to yourself. Heart, mind, shut up. This is what is true. This is what God says. Therefore, this is what I'm going to rest in, and this is what I'm going to do. Faith is calling out to God, contemplating God's truth and God's promises, and then making a commitment to live according to God's ways, regardless of the circumstances that you're presently in. So let me ask you, are you, are you stressed out? Are you worried about something? Do you feel that the world is out of control? then what would it mean for you to look to the temple, to look to the cross? Let me suggest to you that it means going to God and saying, though everything seems out of control, you are my father. And if I'm really accepted freely by grace because of the substitute, Jesus, who gave himself on the cross, then I know my father is in charge. And I will not act like I am an orphan. May God grant us his gift of faith. May his faith be at work within our lives, bringing the transformation that we all are in need of. Father, we thank you for the example of Jonah. We thank you for the word and the spirit that applies the word. I pray that the spirit would apply the word to us today both for those who are in acute need and for those who are aware but not necessarily in dire situations. Lord, may we
consider our faith because it is a faith that has been revealed. It is a faith that has been handed down. It is a faith that by your grace we are able to receive. It is a faith that gives life and hope and peace and joy. Lord, we need these things. We long for these things. And you have promised these things. So, Lord, you haven't given us the way. Let us experience it. We, like Jonah, may offer to you a song of thanksgiving and praise. To you be all glory in this church, we pray. Amen.